0: And we're Herbert's Kids. Hey, The Kids Talk. Your monthly graphic novel review. and thanks for listening to our Halloween Horror Month here on Curry's Kids and our culminating celebration of our review of the E.C. Archives, Tales from the Crypt, Volume 1. This brings in Crypt of Terror, Issues 7 through 19, and Tales from the Crypt, Issues 20 through 22. These were published in 1950 to 1951, and there is a foreword by Hollywood luminary director creator John Carpenter. These came out, this collection of EC Archives, Tales from the Crypt, Volume 1, from Dark Horse Comics in 2015. It was released as a trade paperback graphic novel. And the dominant creative forces in this tome is a who's who of the golden age of comics, many of which would go on and heavily influence the success of the Silver Age of Comics, you had luminaries such as Gardner Fox, Johnny Craig, Wally Wood, Harvey Kurtzman, Ivan Clapper, Graham Ingalls, Jack Kamen, Bill Frascio, and last but not least, and I saved her here to provide at least a little more reflection on her because she is such a pioneer, Marie Severin. She was one of the first women in comics And Frank Jacobs in his 1972 biography of E.C. publisher William Gaines wrote, There was Marie Severin, Gaines colorist and a very moral Catholic who made her feelings known by coloring dark blue any panel she thought was in bad taste. Al Feldstein, the editor, called her the conscience of EC. Now, Severin has repeatedly refuted that assertion, which became part of, really, of comics lore, while also saying that she sometimes used coloring to kind of shield some gruesome content, noting, I would never assume an editorial position. What I would do very often is, if somebody was being dismembered, I would rather color in yellow because it's garish, and also you could see what was going on, or red for the blood element. But not to subdue the artwork. I mean, the main reason these people were buying these books was to see somebody's head cut off, you know? And trusted me with a lot of stuff. They knew that I wouldn't subdue artwork I would just kind of shield it a bit so if a parent picked up the book in a drugstore, they wouldn't see that somebody's stomach was all red. Now, joining me today is none other than Doc. Doc, as has been well chronicled here amongst the kids, is a horror expert. He has run the Anything Horror blog for years, has done countless film critiques, book critiques, and of course, who better to bring in for Tales from the Crypt Volume 1
1: than Doc, Doc, welcome. Thanks, Angus. What, what's better than combining the two great things of Halloween and comic books? <laughs> what a perfect, what a perfect thing. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. And of course, this is our
0: favorite time of year. We very often will say, hey, once we Land in the fall, and we get October, and then Halloween, and then into November with Thanksgiving, and of course the culmination, December, and the holiday season, and Christmas. It's just, it's just a magical time of year. And speaking of magic, Doc, our Kirby Colonel today—a little kernel of knowledge about our namesake Jack—goes into when Kirby goes horror. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. I the to harvest another Kirby Colonel. Okay, our Kirby Colonel. Kirby goes horror. Black Magic. Simon, and this would be Joe, and Jack Kirby's longest running comics were their anthologies. Although the Prize romances, and Prize was the company that they were actually producing content for, were clearly their greatest successes. However, they also appeared to do pretty well with their take on the horror genre, and that was called Black Magic. Now, I actually had done a review of one of those Black Magic issues during Kirby month here, back in August. This series, Black Magic, was also published by Prize, but at least initially was a Simon and Kirby production. So really coming out of their house, it was only prize that was providing publication support. So Black Magic number one came out with a cover date of October, 1950. And like most of their comics, Black Magic was originally a bi-monthly. It went monthly with issue number 10, but it was not safe to consider the delay before going into monthly as a sign that it was not that popular. Really, it was a function of throughput and capacity and bandwidth, if you will, for both Joe Simon and Jack Kirby to be able to produce, and they were producing at a prolific rate. Young Romance and Young Love were, by all accounts, immense successes right from the start, and both of them took over a year before going monthly. This delay was more likely due to the publisher's concern that even a popular title might turn out to be just a fad. Well, we know this would not be a fad, particularly with how well these EC books ultimately, Tales from the Grip, would sell. One indication of how important Black Magic was that Simon & Kirby is that Jack penciled every cover up to issue number 33. But Black Magic was nowhere nearly as popular, of course, as these romance titles. Like Prize Romances, Black Magic was a Simon & Kirby production and labeled as such. That was until issue number 32, when the Simon & Kirby label disappears. This was September of 1954. Ooh, there is a seminal event that was happening around this time, which we will get into later in our Comics Archaeology. Black Magic would only have one issue without the Simon and Kirby label. Then it would be canceled. This wasn't retribution by prize. This really was reflective of the times. And again, we'll tell you why later in that Comics Archaeology. So, this Black Magic title would provide a great legacy for Simon and Kirby. It would eventually be picked up. By DC, and now DC is the curator of that legacy title and has put it together in an anthology series, if I'm not mistaken, as far as an omnibus tome, as well as now being available digitally over on their DC Universe Infinite. So, Doc, this Black Magic comic, have you ever? taking in one of these
1: i have not come across these no i have to say that i am learning from you right now with these black magic ones and it it sounds definitely like something i'm going to go back just for my my own history gap both doc and
0: i being ardent comics fans and particularly of digital now mind you i i know doc you're a big fan of holding that paper comic that single issue or holding that Omnibus or that Trey Paperback graphic novel in your hand. And I get great enjoyment out of that also. But we've also been a big fan of our digital reading experience, not only over on Marvel Universe, but also over on the DC Universe Infinite, as well as Comixology apps. And right now, if you are a DC Universe Infinite subscriber, that entire Black Magic series is made available for you digitally.
1: So you can go in and there and read those classic Simon and Kirby series. And that is something that I still have not gotten into the books on uh, like reading ebooks, But when it comes to comics, I mean, I think just, I mean, it opens the door for, I would never get a chance to read most of these because I would never find them. You know, some of these Silver Age and, and Golden Age books, um, I'm rereading a lot of, uh, uh, well, not rereading, I'm reading for the first time a lot of the original Justice League, you know, back from the Golden Age and everything. I'd never have a chance for that because I ne- I wouldn't be able to afford one book. <laughs> So, uh, you know, you, you know whatever, whatever the services are charging, it's worth their money because I, I do it. I'm not sorry, this is not an advertisement for these services by any means, but it, I, I am definitely a convert to e comics because it has opened up everything as far as all these old things. And Black Magic is definitely something that's on my list now, but I'll be reading.
0: Doc, you're bringing up a great point right there. It is a completely different experience. If folks think that all they're going to be viewing on here are scans, these comics, no, 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 no. What you get here is actually full-blown restoration of the original artwork to where it was there on the original pages, and then it is digitally scanned in in the highest quality to then be able to view. So this isn't a scan of a print, if you will. We're we're talking original art in a lot of instances here, or a really an archival copy of these original productions, which would then would be used for making these omnibus series. So anytime you're looking at, at your friendly neighborhood comic book store, one of those hardback omnibuses, and you're saying to yourself, okay, well, what's the difference between reading this on this very fine paper and the the cleaning up of the artwork and any of the print and then what you get digitally, it's the same high quality, but over on the digital side of the house, you actually now have the capacity to go panel to panel on your tablet and really see incredible detail, a lot of this artwork. And it is a different experience. I find myself zooming in and zooming out. I've also enjoyed, and this is over on the DC side of the house, they've got a panel-by-panel timer, which you can adjust from one to like 10 seconds per panel, and it will automatically advance it for you while you're holding it in your hand. And I've gotten great enjoyment out of that when I've just wanted to go in at a nice pace and read a single issue. Yeah, I, I found great enjoyment out of that. And it's really cool what DC services... Having all these nice little enhancements
1: for the reader, it's really, really great, yeah, it is it's a, it makes it really, really enjoyable, and the better the reader, the more enjoyable it is because, like you said, the d c one I think is fantastic as well, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and oh, well, I will say this and and then we'll get off of our uh, the these uh, subscription services and get back to our review. But, but this is an important aside, and that is both Doc and I have found great frustration in the search functions, particularly over at DC and Marvel. Now, Marvel's didn't used to be that bad, but with their latest upgrade, well, upgrade, they're they're looking at, and that's in air quotes, they they, they cobbled things together great by series, but the old search function I miss. And I hope they end up bringing that back because uh, the only service right now from a viewer standpoint that has this thing wired in search is go figure comixology because they're an amazon owned company and that that company makes or breaks its business by search because they know the shortest distance to a buyer finding exactly what they want is the ringing of that cash register and they get it and they've got that thing wired so what was great about this particular read is that both of us read the electronic version of this EC Archives Tales from the Crypt Volume 1 and did it through the Comixology app, so we can also speak to that experience. But with that said, Doc, let's head over and talk about our creatives and a little creative chatter about our writer and artist, and I'd say primary force behind this Tales from the Crypt Volume 1, Al Feldstein. <gasps> <laughs> Is this artist and this writer? I must meet him. Creative Chatter. Okay, I gave you that list of nine creatives at the beginning of the podcast here who had a significant impact on our title here. But Alf Feldstein, for sure, in this volume one, was the main creative force. I believe his hand was in nearly every one of these stories. For sure in every one of these issues. And he, along with Gaines, were the prime movers over at EC Comics. Not only from, we had Gaines in ownership and also doing editorial. But Feldstein was an editor, a writer, as well as an artist. And matter of fact, his artwork is absolutely gorgeous. Elf Feldstein was a groundbreaking U.S comic book editor and artist, and one of the mainstays of EC Comics. He had a remarkable career with publisher William Gaines' company. His career started off as an artist, writer, and editor for seven of the horror and science fiction titles. Seven, folks, of EC's new trend. He later gained fame as the longtime editor-in-chief of Mad Magazine. Now, I was a subscriber doc growing up. I loved Mad. A matter of fact, my folks were very frustrated with me. I was a research geek kid. I was not an avid novel reader. And they were always encouraging me to read. And they knew the one thing they could get me to read on a monthly basis was my subscription to Mad Magazine. So I, at a uh, very young age, ended up getting a subscription to Mad. I must have been in elementary school, and really uh, emblazoned in my brain is their satire of Empire Strikes Back, and I, I remember that cover issue, and it was absolutely hilarious. But okay, back back to uh, Al. So during that era at Mad, he enjoyed his highest sales, and no kidding. I mean, Mad Magazine truly was the survivor here out of the EC company. Now, born in 1925 in Brooklyn, New York. York. He was the son of Russian immigrants and and an American mother. He enrolled in uh, high school for music and arts. so really he he gravitated towards that from the get-go. And he was an apprentice at Jerry Iger's shop in 1941 cleaned up pages and penciled for Rick Crandell. I mean, I'm naming these names here, and for those who are unfamiliar with the early golden age of comics, these are industry mainstays there. So truly, he cut his teeth there right around the same time that Jack Kirby was coming into the industry. There's no mistaking, this is a, a peer, if you will, of of Jack's. So while attending the Brooklyn College by day, he took night classes at the art Students League. He was in the Air Force during World War II, created the comic strip Baffy for the Blytheville Air Force-based newspaper. Everybody's got to start somewhere. And he was assigned to draw informational posters and slides. Again, something else which was very indicative of the times and of a lot of these creatives, they dabbled over into commercial artwork and instructional educational pieces and utilizing illustration to get across key study points or education points we would see this time and time again with a lot of these early creatives so then he would also do custom designs for pilots flight jackets and after his discharge he briefly went back to Iger before turning freelance he worked as an artist and packager for companies like Fox Comics, this just teenage titles of Junior, Sonny, Meet Corliss Archer. This was all the post-World War II, eh, getting away from the superhero genre, getting more into the, I call it, domesticated comics. So you had romance, you had teen comics, you had things that were interesting uh, to the youth, more topics of the day. I mean, you had Archie and Jughead and all that stuff happening, and So, it's really interesting to see this evolution. Now, in February of 1948, Feldstein joined Bill Gaines, this is critical, at EC Comics and stayed there until his retirement in 1984. He was initially assigned to set up a teenage comic book called Going Steady with Peggy. Oh, gosh. But... The title was dropped before the first issue was published. Thank you. Instead, Feldstein drew stories for crime in Western comic books like Saddle Justice, Crime Patrol, and War Against Crime. Now, these were huge, these crime stories happening. And out of these crime stories, of course, you would have horrific acts happening, which then that gave birth to horror comics coming into popularity. So Gaines would further develop his script writing in E.C.'s famous line of horror, science fiction, and suspense comics, which is known as the new trend. These comic books stood out for their very groundbreaking subject matter, clever plot twists, and high-quality artwork. Okay, out of those three things that I just said right there, keep this one in the back of your head, listeners. High-quality artwork. This stuff stood out. Like nothing else. This was almost a preview of what was to come during the Silver Age of comics and would be replicated stylistically in the 1970s horror craze. So, just seeding the conversation here as we move this along all right so before the official launch of the new trend comic books Felsteins and Gaines started printing horror stories in crime comic books so they were already beginning that transition so you had renamed titles to tales from the crypt the vault of horror respectively while gunfighter became haunt of fear in addition to editing the three horror titles feldstein oversaw production of weird science weird fantasy and crime suspense stories Now, his bio goes on and on and on. However, after this initial work, which gained massive notoriety, huge sales for EC, and ultimately the ire of a Senate panel committee, which again, we'll get into shortly, his biggest legacy outside of that groundbreaking EC work would be with Mad Magazine as editor and contributor. So Mad Magazine, Doc, I think we have to do a whole other podcast on
1: That's a whole different podcast, absolutely.
0: (laughs) And I've got to come up with an omnibus title there for us to read here in one of these future months for a graphic novel of the month. But right now, let's delve into this groundbreaking work with EC Comics and delve into a little comics archaeology, the legacy of EC Comics. (laughs) Now, comics All right, Doc, in Comics Archaeology here, we have really mined several gems. In 1947, Bill Gaines began running EC Comics when his father died in a boating accident. Now, before we get into Bill, let's talk about Max Gaines here, his father. What blew me away when I was reading the introduction to the CC archives, I had no idea that his father was one of the early investors in the businesses that would ultimately become DC Comics and actually made his money being bought out by DC Comics and then would go found EC Comics, which was educational comics, and do everything from school-oriented and Bible story books to then what would eventually become these crime stories, western horror stories, and war stories there over DC, which his son Bill would lean heavy into because he knew what was popular amongst the kids and what would sell. It was really bringing in this next generation to say, hey, look, this is what interests us. So over the next eight years that Bill Gaines took over, so this would roughly be from 1947 to 1955, this small struggling company was reinvented with the new trend line, as we mentioned before, of Tales from the Crypt, crime suspense stories, weird science, and the humor comic Tour de Force Mad. EC shocked readers with gory, morbid horror. These crime stories got into drug addiction, vigilantism, police corruption, anti-Semitism, bigotry, racism. I mean, there was no subject matter that was off limits, which was amazing for the times. Really groundbreaking. It
1: really was, yeah.
0: They challenged the norms. There was risque material in there. In the 1950s, when several groups were concerned about the morality, they insisted that EC comics were instigating juvenile delinquency, which this would then at a time when the Code restricted movie content, EC Comics brought visceral horror to the mainstream. Now, John Carpenter really honed in on this in his preface to this first volume and how it truly inspired him to go and be a horror director and delve into his career the way he did. And it, that That is like the highest praise and endorsement you can have. To have one piece of art, this comic book line and Tales from the Crypt, go on to inspire the likes of John Carpenter, Stephen King. I mean, there are countless creatives who cut their teeth as kids reading EC Comics, and in particular, Tales from the Crypt. Gaines turned his back on the instructive comic books that his dad was interested in and really started honing in on entertaining comics and even went from naming EC, educational comics, to changing that E to entertaining. And Other publishers were filling the drugstores with westerns, romances, and a few superhero titles. But these didn't interest Gaines. He was inspired by radio programs like Inner Sanctum, and he and Feldstein experimented with horror. Vault of Horror and Crypt of Terror stories were popular enough that Gaines spun off these features into their own books, and Vault of Horror and Crypt of Terror became Tales from the Crypt. Now, EC was obviously onto something— these books sold like hotcakes. It was crazy. They started a craze. Now, when we were talking about Black Magic, the issue over there from prizes oh, well, we just want to make sure this wasn't a fad. Nuh uh. This was not a fad because EC put everything out at such a high level from a quality perspective that artists like Graham Ingalls and Jack Davis provided gore, while you had adaptations by none other than Ray Bradbury. <laughs> That's amazing. On short stories that gave this magazine credibility. I mean, these are the creatives. So you had folks who grew up reading pulp, pulp stories, pulp novels, pulp magazines, now coming over to EC because they, there was a level of familiarity there, but almost taking pulp to a credible higher level of artistry. That's what you've got here in EC, and I, I, can't, I cannot emphasize that enough. So by that time, then, 1953, you had other companies imitating EC. Very clearly, Blackmagic was in direct response, and this being Kirby and Simon and, and Prize uh, trying to cash in on what that trendsetter, EC, was doing. Well, then we have the massive stop sign, The slamming of the brakes, the putting of of spikes in the road to pop the tires of this screaming runaway train. That's not the right analogy, but you know what I mean. You're you're basically fouling up the tracks here of this runaway train, or you're popping the tires of this racing car known as EC, and specifically Tales of the Crypt. You had psychiatrist Frederick Wortham began his crusade against comic books. And this is in 1954, and he was a ver- known to be heavily influenced by the Frankfurt School of Marxism and by Theodore Ardorno in particular. And what really kills me here, Doc, is that, you know, this would not be that far from the McCarthy era. You know, Red Scare and Trials and how Wortham got away here or got into the psyche of the Santa panel is you know, beyond confusing to me. But the confusing anecdotes with data, and he argued that juvenile delinquents, and, and even you would see Gaines go to Congress and be the sole testifying voice for the comic book industry. And sadly, this would be the death knell for EC Comics, because they were at the forefront of all of this. And ultimately, you'd only have a couple titles survive from a legacy perspective And that would be Mad Magazine being most notable from there. But there was no denying the influence here of of EC to the Times. Now, what's in a legacy? Well, you had the development and the birth of the Comics Code Authority, that self-policing body amongst the comic book publishers to make sure that censorship would not be occurring at a governmental level. They would self-censor. So there's a legacy. I think even more important has been EC's influence spreading into other media, spawning movies, and eventually an HBO television series. It would inspire an entire generation of creatives who grew up reading those comics like filmmaker John Carpenter. So, Doc, there you have it. There is EC's historical legacy in a nutshell here. What are your impressions and thoughts with regard to the EC title? and the cultural importance and legacy of that brand and the art that they produced.
1: You know, the, the first uh, the first thing that jumps out is uh, the first comment that I thought of was, isn't it interesting? It seems like every generation or every era has its censorship issues. You know, like we talked, we just mentioned that like this kind of rolled into McCarthy, but before that they were going after EC. See, it seems like the, the I'll just, for lack of a better term, the powers that be, they want to blame the the wayward youth of <laughs> the delinquents on something and they attacked comic books here in the 80s they were going after record you know different kinds of records like rap different hardcore kind of albums Tipper Gore with her thing to get answers to ERMC thank you yep and get, the, get those labels on to make sure that I won't, I won't go off into that little side note of what the po- problems possibly were but it's always like there's always a disruptor every industry has like a disruptor you know you could argue that steve jobs was a disruptor when it comes to technology what he did even bill gates you know with his windows and everything and Gaines, he was he's a he was a disruptor here he he took these kind of like you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but these rather ho-hum, boring Western romance comics. And he's like, let's do something a little bit more exciting. And he started doing these horror comics. And the, what was really interesting with these is even like with the horror, like you mentioned all the different kinds of topics, there was nothing taboo. They did not use like stuff like anti semitism or racism or anything like those in an exploitive way. They used it to actually like start a dialogue about it. It was like integral to the plot and like the person that was being an anti-Semite often had justice come to them in a very horrible, grisly way. So it was kind of like you got a, you know, you got to, it was like cathartic because at the end you got to cheer that they, that the bad person was actually getting what they deserved. But it was, it was definitely a disruption because it, it was really cool. Even like, I believe they were like some of the military or the war comics, like Frontline Combat and Two Fisted Tails. You didn't have the typical wide-eyed you know, soldier who like the Captain America kind of soldier who was you know just charging into battle. They're, these were more like like war weary kind of soldiers that were dealing with you know probably now if they put a name to it it'd probably be PTSD that that they were dealing with. That it wasn't all you know like rah rah. It was more of like the human kind of toll that war can take on a, on a person. So it's like they did everything so different, and I think that's what really really grabbed people was it wasn't the same thing over and over again. It was something new, and that's what I really enjoyed about some of those old comics you know now because we're a little bit more desensitized horror has become something so like from people that were influenced by it like john john carpenter himself that you know we've seen way more grisly stuff than you're going to look at when you see these comics like i love uh, the covers of the book that's like the most shocking, grisly thing you'll ever see. And, you know, when you read them, you're like, ah, they're cute. <laughs> you know, that was, my, that was my reaction to a lot. Like, oh, look at the little twist at the end. It was cute. You know, at the time, though, you have to think, like, these were really groundbreaking. And, you know, I know we're not going to get into the art quite yet, but, I mean, the art is so splashy with vibrant colors. It's a real total package with a lot of the things going on in it. Doc, indeed, you said
0: it best. Uh, I will only highlight one thing that you brought to this, and that is you mentioned this trend towards realism and portraying war in a realistic way, which would be one of those elements coming off of World War II that then would help fuel horror. I I think it was a necessary stepping stone towards that horror genre really coming into its own in the early 50s, as you had this confluence of war comics, romance, westerns. And really, the westerns took over the place of... The superhero comics. That's where you got your good guy beats bad guy, and you're right off into the sunset. Or, or yeah, it's funny, spy versus spy. It's funny you mentioned that white hat, black hat. Hey, it's my Mad Magazine
1: roots. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> Mad Magazine. You know, the only other thing I wanted to, I wanted to, like. I saw this when I was doing some research. I found this really funny little anecdote when uh, during these Senate hearings, the only person that ever really came in front of the Senate was William Gaines himself. And it was one of, uh, Jeff, no, not Jeffrey, Johnny Craig, one of his covers for, um, crime and suspend stories. The cover was the, the picture of a man holding a bloody ax and he was holding the head, the severed head of a woman. And one of the senators asked Gaines, um, do you find this as appropriate, um, for, uh, you know, is this appropriate? And is this, what was the exact word he used? I think it was, if this was appropriate, oh, in good taste if this is appropriate and in good taste for the cover of a comic book and Gaines just simply responded, yes, sir. I believe for the cover of a horror magazine, it is. And I thought that was just a perfect, you know, it was kind of flippant, but it was also like, kind of like, well, yeah, it is a horror comic, you know, and they they, they have a market there. So I thought, I thought that was a pretty funny story. And of course that quote was used a lot out of context because it was him agreeing. They, they used it to, to have him agreeing with the Senate that his, Stuff is inappropriate, so they kind of you know misconstrued that. But I thought it was a, I thought it was a really funny. It just shows Gaines's kind of attitude towards it, and his and his sense of humor that he retained through the whole thing as well.
0: Yeah, and you know, Doc, that's also an aspect that we are about to bring up because I am just chomping at the bit to get into our stories and art of Tales from the Crypt Volume One. So let's head over to our literary aisle and start our discussion on the story, art, and legacy influence of Tales from the Crypt. Arr, land there's our literary isle. All right, Doc, here we are on our literary isle. And wow, there are so many stories here within this anthology series and contained in this volume one. It's almost overwhelming where to begin. But as I mentioned previously, Al Feldstein is the dominant creative here in this volume, but there are some significant contributions by some of those other comics luminaries. But let's, in general, what were your impressions of the stories? Maybe let's bring out what were some of the trends or tropes that we saw from story to story, and maybe some repeats of those and variations on themes. Did we start to see some things that were indicative of the times, and then maybe what was forward-thinking?
1: For the times that stood out to you? Yeah, there were definitely. We mentioned it like right before we started recording. How you definitely see some definite tropes that were repeating themselves. The the jaded lover, for example, that was definitely a popular one that came um up again. The ones I really, the stories that I really enjoy were the ones that I called like the one offs. They they were a little bit separate. I think I found myself attracted to like kind of like the the crazy science stories. They weren't necessarily of crazy scientists, but they just took like. They just took like a like uh, like for example the very first one. um, Death must come. It's about they're using they're they're taking the youth gland. I didn't know there was a youth gland in people, and they they put it into you know and they they keep putting it into the same person over and over again, and he stays young. But uh, unfortunately, as his body gets older, he uses the youth gland up faster. So they, they have to kill more and more young people to keep this guy living. And uh, I, I really like those science ones because they're so crazy. There's no there's no science base to anything. They're they're just fun stories. The jaded Lever ones are kind of like you can kind of write them yourself. They are they are what they are. Um, they're not always the most twisted at the at the end. There's a few of them that, that stood out. Um, but I also like the ones that like uh, actually it's a, it's the these were both in the, the the Crypt of Terror number seventeen that was Death May Come with that Youth Clan and the other one was the Man Who Was Death. I really like that one. That was the execution in a prison that executed prisoners that were on death row he ends up kind of taking justice into his own hands and i like that because he got a little bit more of a psychological story involved like what made this man who you know he felt like what he was doing was very decent work because he was you know he was ridding the world of terrible people killers and 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 people like that and then uh and then we kind of see like him get twisted and he ends up you know just taking a law into his own hand and of course the twist at the end is that he ends up in the very electric chair that he was manning for years, but I like that one because you kind of kind of get a little bit of a uh, a psychology twist with you know what made him go from you know, being the executioner to getting twisted in his head and then ending up on the wrong side of that. I'm also, I probably like that one because I'm slowly working my way through Dexter, the TV series. And so I kind of like, I, that one kind of stood out to me with that killer kind of story. But yeah, there's definitely ones, you know, every, I, I think almost, I can say that almost every story has a twist at the end. There's some kind of twist in there. Some of them are really fun. Some of them don't work at all. Nothing is going to be absolutely shocking to anybody because like I said, that these, we, a lot of us have been desensitized not necessarily from horror movies but just in general there's a lot more stuff that's horrible going on in the news than you're going to find in the pages of ec comics right now they are they are fun they always have they're always kind of lighthearted, and the characters some of the dialogue is just laugh out loud funny i know it's not meant to be but it ends up being pretty funny they say a lot of their emotions instead of just like you know using it the artwork to convey the emotions you know you have women be like i'm so scared or or guys going, let's go look into that darkness over there, which I thought were fun. The ones that didn't work for me, we got like, it was kind of like information dumps. The twist coming out through up on this old ghost ship. The plot unfolds by, they're just reading the journal of the old captain of the ship. And that's everything. Uh, the, the draw, the artwork is spectacular in these. It really, really complements what's going on in the, with the written word. Doc okay, is,
0: man we've known each other too long (laughs) i i I knew some of the passage you were going to go down and and i I, i'm glad you did (laughs) because i'm right there with you i truly enjoyed every one of the stories that centered on body horror the body horror stories which tended to be pseudoscience based were fantastic and extremely enjoyable they were so absurd they were fun okay I I, I I loved them. They, they were great. I think what you were bringing up with the executioner, the prisoner executioner, that one was a fascinating character study. And delving into the area of grayness, moral ambiguity, then into crossing of the line. And I think that the major trigger in that one is the fact that the rate with which convictions were happening that was then leading to the executioner being able to perform his duties, was beginning to slow down. And he became frustrated at a system that he felt was not doling out the justice fast enough so he could do his job. A really warped sense of reality to this whole thing. It was, it was fascinating and done with such a nuanced hand. It was really amazing. Now I, I will differ with you because you know you and I have different tastes in in horror. There's are so, some areas that we definitely agree on. So you know, Reanimator and everything dealing with the mad scientist type stuff, we both dig. We we love that stuff. We're both big fans of classic horror. Uh, hammer horror stuff and you know monsters and that sort of thing but i do like the supernatural so i understand your frustration with ghost ship as far as the story was concerned and how it unfolded i totally get that from a pacing standpoint but i actually found it refreshing because it broke the trend of these monotonous revenge love stories in this book oh my gosh I joked to you, because what very often happens, folks, is when I'm reading a title, or we have, and we're prepping for one of our podcasts here, or throughout the course of the month, we'll be pinging one another instant messaging amongst the, the kids here, and I'm referring to Ray, JJ, and of course, Doc. And Doc and I were going back and forth, and I said, it really felt to me, and this was emotionally an impression, and I know this wasn't logically true, but because there were so many of them, it almost felt like half the stories here in this Volume 1 had to deal with unrequited love, jilted lovers, love triangles, uh, you know, jealousy and all that sort of stuff. Well, I think it's most likely closer to a quarter to a third. But still, it was so there were so many variations on the theme that it, it became monotonous for me after a while. It truly did. I, I Yeah, okay, you had a clever plot twist at the end. Gotcha, great. Uh, you know, you had the one guy who's carving out tombstone of the guy who would eventually get killed, and that's because this guy, unbeknownst to him, whose name is on this tombstone and whose date of birth and death are, are labeled on there, happened to have been the former lover of this guy's wife. Okay, and he invites him over to dinner, and and he gets jealous, and this guy who makes gravestones ends up killing the guy, and he goes to jail, and boom. Okay, there you go. So th- there's one. I spoil spoiler, but I-, I don't feel bad in that because seriously, I just saved you having to read a, a title. I just did the other books that go into the supernatural, that go into classic monsters. So there is a werewolf. In here, there is a vampire story. In here, there is ghost story. In here, there is a zombie story. In here, there is a haunted house story. In here, so you get some nice flavor of classic horror tropes that aren't repeated, as as opposed to the jilted lover thing. And normally, with those, there is a crime involved. So I can see where maybe perhaps there was bleed over from some of those crime books, then fueling the actual culmination of a horror story here for EC. Okay, I, I, I'll give them the pass, but enough of them already. I, I, I had my fill. Now, one that stood out for me was Prescription Death. I love that one. That one was awesome. Oh, my
1: Gosh, that was great. Yes. Yes. Me too. I loved it. It was. That was really cool. Because <laughs> it was one of the few ones that you really couldn't tell where it was going. Yeah. You had no idea. what. Where's going on here? <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it was so suspenseful.
0: It was so good. And and because it was so good, it had to do with Graham Engel's artwork in there. Al Feldstein did a great job with the story. Uh, I mean, obviously so, because you were held in great suspense. But Graham Engel's artwork, and anytime time Al, Al Feldstein did art, it, it was spectacular. So, Doc, why, why don't we head over and, and talk about the art here? This art was so ahead of its time in so many ways. I mean, I look at the golden age books of the late 30s into the 40s, and even the early 50s, where you had this very bland art style, very primitive by by comparison. And then all of a sudden you had these EC titles. And it was like,
1: whoa, where
0: did this come from? And, and Doc, there was this light bulb moment that happened for me. Last year, we did Werewolf by Night, the classic series from the 70s. And the year before that, we did Dracula and covered tomb of dracula and then before that we covered the classic rights and swamp thing i now know where the inspiration for all three of those series titles came from it's right here in the artwork of
1: ec and oh no doubt it, it's fu- it's funny you bring that up because i when i was when i was looking at these that's the first thing i was thinking of was swamp thing it's like, this is Swamp Thing, like the early Swamp Thing is so in this style and they couldn't have picked a better influence or, you know, something to be inspired by because it's, it's perfect for those big splashy pages and, uh, you know, and, and Swamp Thing himself. So yeah, absolutely. I, there's no doubt in my mind that's where those influences came from.
0: And Gene Colan, I cannot help but think, got inspiration out of EC's Tales from the Crypt when doing Tomb of Dracula. There's no mistaking the stylistic beats. And from a time perspective, this was the trendsetter, EC. There is nothing else during this time that was like this. And, And in True Testament, we didn't mention him because he's not at all featured in this first volume. But the very famous pulp artist who would come to massive acclaim doing the covers for the Conan series in the late 50s into the 60s Frank Frazetta. Frazetta did work for EC. And
1: that just totally makes sense, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> it totally does. And you know, we were we were discussing the the influences and the legacy. I can also see in this art where someone like a Ralph Bashki would have gained inspiration from having read EC comics to then go and do what he did in animation. No doubt about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was like when I was referring to like the disruptor, the EC comics was a disruptor. That's what I mean. It's like, you know, you have, things are kind of like stagnant and things, things are good. Not saying they're bad, but they're, they're kind of like the same thing over again. And then you get something like EC that comes along and it kind of pushes the envelope a little bit and it shows other artists out there and other creators. It's like, you can go a little bit further. And then all these great minds come together and they start pushing things further. And that's how, you know, you get these like leaps and jumps. And that's what leads to Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night and Early um, Swamp Thing and everything. And it's just by you know those little those little steps up. And it's definitely this was definitely a huge step up, I think, in both storytelling and art for sure.
0: Doc, what would you say are some of the central themes? and styles to the artwork here. What what do you consider their strengths? What really
1: popped off the page for you? In general, the colors really popped off the page for me. And I really think, I really enjoyed the detail in the expressions on the people's faces. They did an awesome job with like, really showing shock and horror. I know I joked before about, you know, you have people kind of saying their emotions, like, you know, some of the women would be like, oh my God, I'm so scared. But you would see it on their face too. You can see the, the terror as the the final reveal of whether it was a creature coming out of the grave or, you know, whatever it might be. You can see the horror in the face. And I really, really love the detail in the in the facial expressions. And it was probably something for an artist that was so simple, just, you know making the eyebrows v a little bit and <laughs> things like that but it was some stuff that you didn't see a lot before and it was uh i thought they were they were really cool and like the cre- like the creatures i thought were really really inventive they went a little bit beyond just your typical like that like the episode that you said or episode issue that you mentioned about the like that was the vampire theme um you didn't get the typical dracula looking vampire it was something new the werewolf i thought also was something pretty cool so they they tried to change around the traditional tropes of the time and just give something a little bit different to readers and i, I really like the extra thought into the creativity and making something a little bit different
0: yeah I, doc not only making something a little different too and freshening up these themes. Because by this time, you you hadn't entered into Hammer Horror, but you had had the early horror movies, the the classic uh, Dracula films, and some of the silence that had happened. And this was taking those old tried-and-true storylines and tropes and literally bending them on their ear and fr- freshening them up for the 50s. Ooh, how does that sound? Uh, but, but literally, that's what was happening here. You brought up a great point as far as the level of detail. The one story in here as far as the doctor who has the just crazy eyes in, in the glasses, they, the maestro's hand, that was just exquisite. I thoroughly loved the artwork on that one because the attention to detail on those faces just set it all. The shock and horror of the doc, the, the man, you know, losing his his hand, and then the hand actually being thrown into the fire and then crawling up the chimney and then heading outdoors. I mean, it, it is really cool. I, 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 I absolutely love that. And then, you know, something else that is a central element to all of this, and not only speaks to the art, but the legacy, you have the Crypt Keeper. The character of the Crypt Keeper, you have a host for every one of these issues and every one of these stories with the Crypt Keeper at the end providing the wrap-up of the story and normally doing it in a very humorous way. So here is this blending of humor with horror. And I don't recall anything before this blending those elements which frankly when you see those elements blended together you completely see oh here's the formula that the evil dead played off of that all of these horror movies the freddy krueger films the nightmares before elm street so what craven West craven has a wicked sense of humor you know because you also see that happen in the scream films this element of blending the humor with the horror is done so
1: well here by EC in these tales of the crypt, tales from the crypt stories. I think that I think that's a great point because, like, when you look at like like we said, horror, uh, Hammer wasn't here yet, but um, the the old Universal movies, there was not an ounce of humor in any of those movies. It was just gothic kind of feeling and it was it was done straight and i, I get why they were doing that because they were trying to create that atmosphere it's like the ec discovered that phenomenon it's like when you add a little bit of humor in it makes the horrifying elements even more horrifying and it kind of makes the funny elements more funny so you, you get that in there, and i just think you said it best with that with those evil dead movies and uh, american werewolf in london i mean what better blending of horror and comedy than i mean one second you're laughing and then it's the next minute you know, the the werewolf is ripping people's heads off and disemboweling them. And I mean, it's horrifying and it's such a great blend. And when they discovered this, I think they really, I think all the writers, maybe not vocally, and not intentionally, but they all latched onto this and were like, we're onto something here with this horror and this comedy elements coming together. Well, I think we're onto something and they really ran with it. And then the Crypt Keeper, like we both said, we heard the Crypt Keeper's voice from the H- HBO show, <laughs> but it's like, it is. And I love the, um, and I think there was a witch in there too often, wasn't there? The Witch's Cauldron or something was another little thing there. And like, she wasn't quite as funny as Crypt Keeper, but you know, she was also there kind of breaking up the horror with a little bit of comedy as well.
0: Yeah, and Doc, I think if there were any early comedy influences crossing over into the horror genre, it would maybe be like Abbott and Costello meet the mummy, you know, that, that sort of stuff. And I can't help but think that maybe some of these writers and artists in their youth were watching that and going, oh, okay, yeah, I could see that. Well, maybe, maybe let's take this to another level. But you brought up another point here. The other shining element in all of this beyond the art and beyond like half the stories. The other half of stories are fine. They're serviceable. The art carries them through. And then, and then truly you have partnerships between the story being as strong as the art. Really, the art is the MVP here of this series. But, but, but it's the Crypt Keeper's Corner. This was so brilliant on so many levels. You know, Stan Lee often would say, look, the key to Marvel being as popular as it was with the youth, was not only providing a fresh face, humanizing these superheroes, giving them real problems. I mean, I hear Stan in my head right now as I'm saying all of this. But he said, you know, between the Stan's soapbox and the bullpen letters and the letters section of the comic books being engaging to the readers. So you'd have that editor of that book, that title, responding back to the readers as far as what they observed, whether it was a compliment, a beef, what have you. In in this Crypt Keeper's corner, you have not only the Crypt Keeper talking to the reader, but then you also will, depending on what issue and how many letters they got, have letters also sprinkled in here, with the Crypt Keeper giving very clever quips. Lots of double entendres, tons of puns, and punchlines as if it, as if they 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 weren't funny enough they have to be in all caps
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> so over the top so you get it as a reader so i could see for a little kid you know teaching them about puns and and punchlines you though that visual cue of the thing all being in caps saying okay this is your cue to laugh but but truly, some of these are so clever, I found myself laughing out loud. Even now, this this book from the 50s still had humor elements that were relevant today. That's a huge testament to how effective that section, that Crypt Keeper's Corner was. And frankly, Doc, let's look at the HBO show as its legacy. Yeah, some of those stories were were great, but frankly, the highlight of that show was always the monologue and reflections of the Crypt Keeper. That was some incredible comedy writing.
1: It was, it was. It was. definitely. I mean, I think the show was was it was developed by HBO based on the Crypt Keeper himself, that they wanted to bring this guy to life, have that comedy in there with these fun stories as well. But I think it was the Crypt Keeper that got, that got that show greenlit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it had to have been.
0: It had to have been because... I'm looking right here, it's on page 164 of the EC Archives, Tales from the Crypt, Volume 1. And the reason I'm calling out this page in this particular Crypt Keeper's Corner, this Crypt Keeper's Corner is the Rosetta Stone, if you will, to their formula here at EC, as much as there is a formula. It's the big reveal of not only the just, you know, knee-slapping comedy, But then the discussion here of I still don't know how it happened, but the witch's cauldron is now a permanent department in Tales from the Crypt. How disgusting can we get? Hey, I just had a skull-shattering thought. Pardon me while I pick up the pieces here. That's better. Almost lost my head for a moment. Is it possible? Could it be? Do you think? Oh, no, no, no. The Vault Keeper. He did this to me. And it just goes on and on and on and on. So they are developing now this style of narrative between themselves and the readership. And now remember, kitties. Now see, you remember from the HBO show, it was always kitties. Remember, kitties, keep writing me letters. You don't have to write them on human skin. Any kind of skin will do. So, I mean, this really takes it all over the topic. You can also see where the midnight movie hostings or monster marathon hostings by like Elvira and where Elvira's sense of humor would, would come out was very much
1: out of this EC legacy. He's the first, I mean, he's the first horror host, I believe, right? The Crypt Keeper. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, one, one of them, I remember reading one of those where uh, uh, some, somebody wrote a letter and said, hey, your story has really left me cold. And he responds and the Crypt Keeper responds, Well, why don't you give yourself a hot foot with an acetylene torch? <laughs> just short and sweet, just great stuff. And yeah, that comedy is just it just works so well. But yeah, I mean, and but what 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 better um legacy too when we you know talking about legacies than the horror host? I mean, you know, we had growing up in uh in South Jersey, we had um Stella from South Philly, you know, and who was awesome. I mean, love what was it, Saturday Night Dead after Saturday Night Live on Saturday nights and but i mean and the horror hosts, they do so much and then of course you know that evolved into like things like usa up all night with gilbert Gottfried and Rhonda Shear. they weren't horror hosts, per se but it was that it was that vein where they did funny commentaries in between commercial breaks and stuff and that was this is all the crypt keeper i mean this was coming directly from the good old ec crypt keeper it's exactly it it, it is amazing what this singular
0: series brought to bear and its long regional influence on many media. I mean, Doc, you mentioned right there that local hosts there were local hosts all throughout the country that were doing these sort of things. I mean, you talk to someone from the Midwest and, you know, they've got their particular favorite local hosts who would do this stuff, whether it would be kids programming, whether it was for these monster film marathons that would happen in the afternoons. I mean, in addition to the midnight showings, I always remember there being A Saturday afternoon. So, of course, this was after he got done with Saturday morning cartoons, and then Soul Train would come on, and then in the and then in the afternoon we would have creature double feature, and we had everything from the classic House of Wax. I mean, I remember seeing a lot of Vincent Price and Peter Cushing and all of those classic movies. But they generally had a host. Now, that host would maybe sometimes be live in studio or it would be a voiceover host from the the channel. And it was normally a UHF station, folks. It would do this. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with UHF stations, this is what a focused cable channel would be like today, okay? It would be providing afternoon cartoons for kids when they become home. It would have young kids who were at home still and not in preschool programming in the mornings. And then in the evenings, it would have syndicated reruns of popular TV series such as Star Trek or anything along those lines. And that's where I saw my reruns of Batman from the 1960s. When we're talking these horror marathons, This hosting would be happening regionally, and it would normally be done by either a voiceover person from the station who was rolling that film, or you would have an in-studio host who would introduce the afternoon, tell you about the films, have, as you said, doc, these little sketches that would take you into a commercial break and out of a commercial break, It was great stuff. It was fantastic entertainment and very indicative now of a bygone era
1: for the most part. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. You don't see that anymore. You don't see the host and everything. I think the closest thing we have now, if you want to, and I'm not saying this is a direct line back to EC, but like Mystery Science Theater where it became... Instead of just on, you know, the, uh, the book ends of a show, now it's throughout the entire show where you have that funny commentary going on. You know, I, I'm always watching Mystery Science Theaters when I'm have when i doing work, so it's in the background because I've seen them so many times now. But it's to me, it's that same vein where it's just not necessarily always you want to see a bad movie, but when you see it with this funny commentary, it makes it really watchable. And I think that goes back to, you know, just those funny commentaries that we get from, from the critics. Crypt keeper, and why can why is that such a, a tongue twister? Sometimes crypt keeper, <laughs> uh,
0: alliteration, man. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, Elma Fudd. Oh. <laughs> it's the crypt keeper. Yeah, no, I, I hear you.
1: Elma Fudd, That's it. <laughs> Branching off into all these different areas, and it's just um, it's awesome, and it is, it's it's um, you know, showing my age definitely. It's uh, it's sometimes a, a, a heavy heart when you look back at like. Like you were mentioning, come, we had our cartoons on Saturday. Soul Train was kind of depressing because even though it was a really awesome, fun show, it was the end of the cartoons. And then, but then you knew after Soul Train was over, you're getting into some horror movies for the rest of the day.
0: Yeah, because I'd much rather watch Soul Train than watch American Bandstand. And really, really, I wanted I wanted them to quickly get into, you know, whatever the horror marathon would be for the afternoon or the double feature would be. It's like, you know, let's, let's get on with it already. Can we, can, can we get rid of Dick Clark here and let's get onto the horror films? No offense, Dick Clark, but
1: uh, you know, <laughs> exactly. And, and then it was, you know, not getting, not wanting to get too far off the subject, just going down memory lane. And then it was after you had your creature double feature, then you would have like some of these um, really cool series, like Friday the Thirteenth, the series, and uh, War of the Worlds, the TV series, which would kind of continue that trend of like after the horror. Again. I really, I rarely stepped outside on a Saturday because I had all these great shows on. <laughs> Oh, Doc, In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Yes, exactly. Yep, that's another one.
0: Oh, yes. Yes, many a time after that creature double feature, you get an episode of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Oh, man, it's good stuff. Good stuff. (laughs) Exactly. But that's okay, because you know what? We were able to get back to what inspired all of that. And and, and truly it's here within this EC archives, tales from the crypt volume one. So doc, what advice guidance suggestions would you like to leave our listeners with as it relates to this volume?
1: You know, if you're going into it and you're looking for something that's going to really scare you and shock you like the covers promise it's my, my guess is unless you've never seen anything horror related before, you're probably not going to be shocked and horrified and you know with all the grisly images and everything but they are just really fun stories yes yeah, some of them get a little bit bogged down with the same kind of jilted lover theme that goes on but there are some really great gems in there that are definitely worth reading they're just fun reads definitely take your time because i know a lot of people sometimes skip over like the letters to the editor section but you definitely want to read those because there's so much there's some comedy gems in those letters from the editor um from the keeper himself that are that are totally worth the volume itself but um you know enjoy it it's like if you just want to go back in time just look at some art that was really ahead of its time and even these stories that were ahead of its time because of the uh, the content that was in them um it's just really fun to read there i found myself burning through these stories there's there's four stories per volume or it's like for crypt crypt of terror number 19 there's four stories then number 20 there's four stories so i think what was there six altogether so it was 24 and it was uh they're just really fun they're really you know they're very lighthearted. doesn't take a lot of brain power to get through them so they're just really fun if you're looking for something to wind down your day um, before you go to bed just read a couple of these stories they'll put a smile on your face they're just fun overall happy
0: halloween everyone happy
1: halloween